Hi, my name is Michael Sano. I'm Jewish and I love Israel. So if you love Israel, if you love being Jewish, or if you have an unwavering connection to the land of Israel, then you're in the right place. Welcome to the 12 Cities in Israel podcast. Shalom, shalom, shalom. Hey, what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? Welcome, welcome, welcome to the 12 Cities in Israel podcast, the only positive podcast about the people, the food, the culture, and the history, apparently, of the state of Israel. Um, Hey, uh, if this is your first time watching, hit the like button, the subscribe button, and the notification bell. And uh, if you want to take us with you, you can always find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and on Spotify. And we'd like to tell you that this episode was brought to you by the 12 Cities in Israel Modern Hebrew Flashcards. Um, The best flashcard set on the market, the best way to learn Hebrew or to uh, to brush up on those Hebrew skills, um, and we'll have and they're available on Amazon, uh, and they're free if you have Kindle Unlimited. All right, um, we'll have more on that later in the episode. All right, hey, uh, we are moving on to our next of the twelve cities in Israel. As you've, uh, if you've been listening to the past few episodes. Um, our first one was Beersheba. We went over Beersheba, the history and the modern city. We went over um, Akko, the history and the modern city. I'm going to tell you the Akko one, the modern city. I wasn't as excited about that episode. I did a lot of reading. I'm going to try to bring a little more of me through in this one as we talk about Ashkelon. All right, um, Ashkelon is an amazing city, and since this is the uh, the first part one, um, we're going to be going over the history. I am going to be doing a lot of reading because Ashkelon has an amazing history. Um, wow, just like Akko, just like all of these 12 cities, um, with the exception of very few, they have colorful um, and vibrant histories um all right so let's start off um it is located in the southern district of israel on the mediterranean coast and it's about 30 miles south of tel aviv the ancient seaport of ashkelon dates all the way back to the neolithic age um its history has had the ancient egyptians the canaanites the phoenicians the philistines the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Hasmoneans, the Romans, the Arabs, and the Crusaders, all calling it their own, um, with the Mamluks eventually destroying it in 1270. Ooh, spoiler alert. Sorry about that. Um, this all changed, though, in 1953 with the consolidation of several neighboring villages into the newly formed city of Ashkelon. And it bring, they, the state of Israel brought it back into the world. And as of 2019, Ashkelon is the third largest city in Israel's southern district. And it has some of the most amazing beaches. Peter Madera, Peter Madera, I'm going to have a sip of coffee. This is for you. 
L'chaim. All right, so that, that's the intro. That just lets you know a little bit about the city of Ashkelon and where we're going to. As you noted, as you probably noted from all of the names of all of the civilizations that I, I read out, holy junk, this place covers so much history. But we're going to breeze through it. I'm going to give you the highlights. That's why you come to me. What's up? All right, so it Ashkelon goes all the way back to the Neolithic age. We're talking Stone Age. Well, is that Stone Age? Neolithic Age? Probably. Maybe not. I don't know. I don't have my ages there. But um, Ashkelon dates all the way back to the Neolithic Age and was discovered and excavated in 1954 by French archaeologists. Dude, what is going on with me? Uh, uh, it's the Hebrew by a uh, French archaeologist, Jean Perrault, and excavations were also undertaken between 1997 and 1998 by Josef Garfinkel um, in conjunction with Hebrew University in Jerusalem, Yerushalayim. Um, at the site, they found, um, during all of the excavations, they found over a hundred fireplaces and hearths as well as a bunch of pits, like burning pits and stuff like that, but no tangible architecture with the exception of one wall. That attests, we're gonna talk about total destruction towards the end um, and why there was only one wall. Um, layered atop one another, subsequent phases of occupation have been found at the site with sterile layers of sea sand in between them, thus indicating that during this era, Ashkelon was primarily occupied on a seasonal basis. So basically, I don't know which seasons they were. It didn't really uh, say uh, the, the seasonal cycle of the Neolithic people in Ashkelon. But basically what would happen is as the seasons would change, they would um, exit the site. And when the season turned back to the one where they would inhabit it, they would come back. Boom. There you go. So now, moving out of the Neolithic Age for Ashkelon into the Bronze Age and the Canaanite era. Ooh, conflict. Um, all right. Oh, I got something in my eye. It's making me twitch. Hold on. Um, now, during... Ah, oh, jeez, I'm Pete. It went right up into my contact. Sorry about that. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Hold on. Going back to the Bronze Age and the Canaanite era. So during the Middle Bronze Age, which was 2000 to 1550 BCE, Ashkelon became a large walled city of about 15,000 people. And it was built on an outcropping of sandstone with its own underground water supply. Um, it was such a prominent location that Ashkelon was mentioned in what are called the Egyptian execration texts, which are texts that listed uh, the enemies of the pharaoh from the Egyptian 11th dynasty, which reigned from 2130 to 1991 BCE. Um, and in it, the city was referred to as Ash Askanu with a Q. So Ashkelon was also referenced 
in the Amarna letters, which uh, were circa 1350 BCE, um, which were correspondences between the Egyptian and Canaanite kingdoms um, about diplomatic and administrative affairs. Um, these letters were between King Kidia of Ashkelon, which, were, uh, which was called in the letters Ascaluna, so a little bit different, um, Ascuna to Ascaluna, uh, so they were between King Yidya of Ascaluna and the Egyptian pharaoh. Um, found in the ruins from this era was a small ceramic tabernacle with a cast bronze statuette of a bull calf. Uh-oh. Which originally had been covered in silver. This item is thought to be associated with the worship of the Canaanite gods El and Baal. So here we have, um, we have actual, uh, what do you call it? Archaeological evidence of these Canaanite religions, which I think is pretty fascinating because there's not really much that's, there's a lot that's known um, through the biblical record, um, but to have the archaeological evidence to buttress that uh, written information is pretty pretty phenomenal, I think. Alrighty. So, out of the Bronze Age and the Canaanite era into Ashkelon's Philistine era. So, we are covering everything. Ashkelon was walked upon by so many different people. So, the Canaanites who lived in Ashkelon were then conquered by the Philistines in approximately 1150 BCE. There is evidence of Greek cultural influence in Philistine art and architecture found in Ascalon, uh, and that is based on references found in Mycenae, Greece, from digs there, archaeological digs there, um, thus lending credence to the hypothesis that the Philistines were linked to the sea peoples that were recorded as warring with cultures throughout the Eastern Mediterranean region. So I don't know if a lot of you know this, but nobody really knows who the Philistines were, which is really interesting. So we have this art, we have this written record, not just in the Bible, but also in Egyptian records, in ancient Turkic records, uh, whoever was there, in the uh, records of Crete and all this. Or, or is it Crete? I don't know if it's Crete. Um, but we have records of the Philistines or the Sea Peoples, and here we have reference that there is um, a link between the Mycenaean Greeks and the Philistines. Oh, Interesting. So Ashkelon was also one of the five Philistine cities that were constantly at war with the Israelites, uh, the kingdom of Israel, and eventually the kingdom of Judah, because the kingdom of Israel uh, collapsed under the Assyrians and all of the, well, the, a lot of the people from the kingdom of Israel came to the kingdom of Judah. Um, which is also why there's dual narratives in the Bible. Didn't know that. That's another total, total episode, but that's just interesting. Um, 
Ashkelon is also mentioned by the chronicler Herodotus, who wrote about the greatness and the history of the city's temple to Venus or Temple of Venus. Um, so that's pretty cool. That's like having your name um, mentioned for, let's say you you were in Little League and you threw the biggest pitch uh, streak um, on, on record and you were in the New York Times. That's what that's like. So it's pretty cool. Herodotus. Boom. Ashkelon. Finally, in 604 BCE, Philistine Ashkelon and the Philistines themselves came to an end when Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar II destroyed the city and took the population with them back to Babylon. Sound familiar? Hmm. So it wasn't just us that that happened to. We weren't the only ones that got dragged to Babylon. It was also the Philistines. So that's where the Philistines went. So... This, um, there is an argument that um, the residents of the area are the historical Philistines, and that's where the name Palestine comes from. And I don't know about the etymology of um, Palestine. Uh, I know part of it, and that's uh, the Romans named it Palestina, um, something Palestina. Um and that could be because of the Philistines who were there. But by the time the Romans got there, the Philistines were no longer a people. They had been dispersed and their culture was lost during the Babylonian exile. Crazy. Now you know this. What's up, Michael? You're welcome. I give you this information free of charge. <laughs> All right. Now, um, I'm going to have another sip of coffee. Hold on just one sec. Mm-mm-mm. All right, so we're moving out of the Philistine era into the Persians, then the Greeks. So the city was rebuilt and existed under Persian influence. Um, I don't have the information on who rebuilt it. I don't know if it was actually under the Persian Empire, but it was influenced culturally um, by the Persians until Ashkelon became part of the empire of Alexander the Great. Um, in the 4th century BCE. Now, during um, the seminal reign of Alexander the Great, and on through both the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, Ashkelon remained an important and strategic seaport for the Hellenistic Empire. So we noticed this about Akko, that um, these coastal port cities in what would become Israel um, were important crossroads uh, for the region, for trade, military, everything. And Ashkelon was one of these for the Hellenistic empires. Um, so now we're moving on to the Hasmoneans, to the Romans. I told you I was going to move quickly through this. Um, now, while not directly under the control of the Hasmonean kingdom, um, the second in the second and the first century BCE, Ashkelon did maintain trade and good diplomatic relations with the Hasmonean monarchs. But the Hasmonean monarchs did have some control over the city of Ashkelon, as is evidenced um, that during the reign of the Hasmonean queen Salome Alexand Alexandra. Alexandra, 
who reigned from 76 to 67 BCE. So we're coming closer to to um, CE, Common Era. Um, the court during this time, the court of Simeon ben Shetak, <coughs> excuse me, sentenced 80 women with the charge of sorcery. So they're not, they have no control over Ashkelon, but apparently Simeon uh, ben Shetak at the behest, I'm assuming, of uh, uh, Queen Salome Alexandra sentenced 80 women to death. Now, this then led to uh, the living relatives of those accused of sorcery to accuse Ben Shetak's son of a crime with a punishment also requiring execution. And this execution was carried out. Um, it isn't clear that um, ben Shetak's son actually did anything. This seems to be revenge, but this occurred. Crazy. Whoa. Violent history. But, you know, it was a different time. I'm not making excuses for the behavior, but I'm also not relativizing in terms of saying, well, that's just unacceptable because we're talking about kings, we're talking about queens, we're talking about courts that have different standards than we have today. So although it is shocking, um, we see many shocking things from this time. Um, and it's sad. Boom. Um, in 30 BCE, Herod the Great comes on the scene. What? To become the client king of Rome under the uh, over the uh, reign of Judea. So he becomes the client king of the region of Judea. Um, but surprisingly, he did not receive Ashkelon as part of this package. What? This did not stop him, though, from building all kinds of buildings. Um, he built bathhouses, elaborate fountains, open like squares and marketplaces. So the Hasmoneans didn't really know how to stay in their own backyard, apparently. Um, that's what's fascinating about the Hasmonean kingdom in the Second Temple period. It's like it's like Game of Thrones. It totally is. It's amazing. I recommend. I'm going to do, actually, yeah, let's do one on that. When I get done with this, we'll hit some of that older history and we'll do some of that fun stuff. Um, so... Now, there has been a, uh, a tradition that suggests <coughs> that, um, that Herod was born in Ashkelon. And maybe you've heard that. I had never heard that. Um, but I found out that that was a tradition. Now, I'm thinking that that was done in order to give him street cred in the Judean kingdom because he was actually... Um, he was actually born in, where was he? Idumea, uh, making him an Edomite. Uh, so he was a foreigner who became king of Judea, uh, but married a Hasmonean queen and then became um, Jewish. I don't, I don't even know if he was considered, I know he was the king of the Jews, but I don't even know if he was Jewish. Let me know in the comments. Um, now, eventually in 6 CE, the Herodian kingdom of Judea was partitioned in, into what were called tetrarchies. 
Um, and Ashkelon's control and administration now came under the authority of the Syrian provincial governor. Um, and it must also be noted that during the Great Jewish Revolt, which took place from 66 to 70 CE, which eventually led to the destruction of the Second Temple, um, that the city of Ashkelon maintained its loyalty to Rome. So that is Ashkelon in Roman times. Um, just like everything else in the region, it was probably a tumultuous place. Now, moving on to the Byzantine era, in the 6th century, the city of, are you ready for this, Ascalon, was included during the creation of the Byzantine Madaba Mosaic map, which is a segment of a floor mosaic in the church of St. George at Madaba, which is located in Madaba, Jordan. This means that to the Byzantines, Ashkelon had a, um, it maintained a significant level of importance to the empire, as it was a seaport, I'm sure it did. But it's also interesting because during the Byzantine era, several bishops from Ashkelon referenced as Ascalon at the time took part in the first council of Nicaea in 325 CE. So this is Christianity. The first council of Constantinople in 382, 381, a synod held in Lida in 415, um, the robber council of Ephesus, in 449, the Council of Chalcedon in 451, and Ascalon was also represented at a synod in Jerusalem in 536. These were all big Christian, um, uh, big Christian get-togethers, uh, religious get-togethers, in order to codify, if I'm not mistaken, the First Council of Jerusalem. Were they at the First Council of Jerusalem? No, Nicaea was where they established um, the codification of the New Testament, all this stuff, church law, all that. So there were a bunch of bishops from Ashkelon, which is pretty spectacular. So in the new um, Christian religion of the time, as it was developing, Ashkelon had a big hand in that. Uh, within the Ro Roman Catholic Church, Ashkelon, or as I said, Ascalon, um, was what was called a residential bishopric, but is now today considered a titular see or a dead diocese. Meaning, remember I told you it had all of that important status, uh, significance. Well, now it doesn't. So um, as time wore on, um, it maintained less significance. But I'm going to tell you why coming in the next history. Hold on. Let me take another sip of coffee. Hold on. We are breezing through this pretty quick. I hope you're enjoying it. I hope you're enjoying the information. Um and getting some insight into the history of these places and how deep and rich and far back it goes. Now, we move into the early Islamic era. Uh, the Byzantines would lose Ashkelon during the conquest of the Muslim Rashidun Caliphate, which um, existed from 633. Oh, no, this happened between 633 to 634. Um, the Byzantines reoccupied Ashkelon, 
during the second Muslim civil war of 680 to 692. But eventually the Umayyad Caliph, because there were four main caliphates, uh, Abid al-Malik, who reigned from 685 to 70, uh, 705. <coughs> so this caliph from the Umayyads reigned from 685 to 705 and recaptured the city and he fortified it against further invasions. Now, under the Fatimid Caliphate, Ashkelon enjoyed prosperity, uh, and they built a mint for coinage there, and they also built a, uh, a naval base. So th they had a couple of naval bases, apparently, and one of their uh, main ones was at Ashkelon. So now we have a semblance of peace. Ashkelon is now, we've had peace in Ashkelon over time. The Hellenist, uh, the uh, Hellenistic empires had peace. Um, the, who came after that? Uh, the Romans, that was a tumultuous time, but Ashkelon pretty much since it maintained um, peace with Rome. So there's peace, someone takes it over, peace, someone takes it over, peace, someone takes it over. That's going to happen again because in come the Crusaders. And to the Crusaders, Ashkelon, to them, which was called Ascalon, based on the Byzantine importance, remember it was a residential bishopric, um, was an ideal, loca uh, ideal location strategically because it was a coastal city, but it was also part of their the, the former Byzantine Empire. Now, in 1099, following the siege of Jerusalem, the Fatimid army was routed by crusader legions at the Battle of Ascalon, but it wasn't captured because, and this happened in Akko too, but it wasn't captured because none of the leadership in the crusaders could get their junk together, and there was so much infighting, so they never wound up capturing Ashkelon. Um, now, because of this, at, uh, Ashkelon became a fat, Fatimid frontier post and housed Fatimid reinforcements from Egypt, um, as well as a large number of refugees from areas conquered by the Crusaders. Now, then the Fatimids used Ashkelon to launch raids against the Crusader uh, outposts and... Um, against the kingdom of Jerusalem. Now, eventually, trade resumed, what? Between Ashkelon and the Crusader kingdom of Jerusalem, though the inhabitants of the city experienced f frequent food and supply shortages. These food and supply shortages, though, were brought in by Fatimid army uh, reinforcements from Egypt, and eventually... Um, the trade stopped again. So in 1150, the Fatimids fortified Ashkelon with 53 towers. But in 1153, after a seventh, seven month crusader siege, the city fell to King Baldwin, the third of Jerusalem. And the Crusaders then added Ascalon to the Kingdom of Jerusalem 
in it was in the county of Jaffa and created the county of Jaffa and Ascalon, making it one of the four major feudal regions of the kingdom of Jerusalem. Boom. There you go. Um, in 1187, here we go again, Ashkelon was captured by Saladin during his conquest of the Crusader states following the Battle of Hattin. Now, following the Crusader conquest of Jerusalem, this is really interesting too. Um, the Karaite Jewish community's six elders from Ashkelon worked to assist in the freeing of ransomed Jews and holy relics from the Crusaders in Jerusalem. This is detailed in the letter of the Karaite elders of Ascalon, which details their efforts to free the ransomed Jews. Um, now, Karaites are non-rabbinic Jews. They're Jews who only believe in the Torah. They do not believe in the Talmud. Uh, or the Mishnah, Gemara, Talmud, all of it. They don't believe in that. Um, just to give you an idea of who the Karaites are. Now, this population of a few hundred Jews, Karaites and Rabbinites, uh, remained in Ashkelon, but eventually they moved to Jerusalem when the city was destroyed in 1191. Here we go again, Ashkelon. Nothing, we can't have anything pretty anywhere, right? Um... This destruction came at the hands of Saladin, who destroyed the city because of its strategic importance uh, to the Crusaders. It was then uh, reestablished by King Richard I of England, the leader of the crusade at that time, and a citadel was constructed on the city's ruins. The citadel was reconstructed and refortified by Richard, Earl of Cornwall in 1240. Uh, between 1240 to 1242, but again fell in 1247 during Asalia Ayub's war against the creators, and Ashkelon was once again under Muslim rule. So, um, over a period of about 100 years, um, Ashkelon saw nothing but war during this period. And finally, the Mamluks who came to power in 1250 eventually destroyed the city of Ashkelon. Mamluk Sultan Baybars um, in, Baybars in 1270 ordered the citadel and the harbor to be destroyed. Following this destruction, the city of Ashkelon was abandoned by its inhabitants and fell into disuse. So that is 1270 when Ashkelon was destroyed. So during the Ottoman era, rule of the region of the area of Ashkelon continued to have inhabitants and villages were found throughout the area, but the city continued to remain um, abandoned. So there was no one in Ashkelon during the Ottoman times. Ashkelon proper. Um, Ottoman tax records can be found of inhabitants of a few villages in the area. Um, and it was no, including a town called Majdal, which was noted by historians and tourists to the region 
towards the end of the 15th century. So it was noted towards the end of the 1400s, but it was destroyed in 1270. That's 200 years. Nothing. Boom. In 1596, Ottoman tax records show Majdal to be a large village of 559 Muslim households, making it the seventh most populous locality in Palestine, uh, in the Palestine region, following Tzvat, Jerusalem, Gaza, Nablus, Hebron, and Kafar um, Kanina? Kafar Kana, sorry. Um, trouble reading. Um, so it was not, there was, there weren't a lot of people in this area after this. After um, the Mamluk uh, rule and the destruction of a lot of these places, there wasn't a lot there. The Ottomans didn't really invest that much in maintaining the region. Um, in approximately 1870, an official Ottoman list of villages stated that Mejdel or Majdal was comprised of a total of 420 houses with a population of 1,175. It is thought that this count of the population only included men. Um, but even then, still, the Ottomans didn't really do anything in the area of Ashkelon. Now, once we move on to mandatory Palestine, which is the next phase, um, the population trend for villagers living uh, villages in the Ashkelon region and Majdal specifically um, continue. There, there is some growth. So, their first census in British Mandatory Palestine in 1930 found the number of inhabitants to be 6,166 Muslims and 41 Christians. So the population went up by like 5,000, which is a lot, but it's not a metropolis. Um, by 1948, this population had grown in size to about 11,000, which is 4,000 more people. It's getting bigger. During the time of the British Mandate, the village of Majdal became specifically known for its weaving industry with approximately 500 looms in the village in 1909. And in a 1920 report by the British government, it was estimated that there were 550 cotton looms in the town of Majdal with an annual output worth more uh, worth around 30 to 40 million francs. Now, um, this success, though, waned and eventually, because European imports were being brought in to mandatory Palestine, um, and eventually these looms um, disappeared, these businesses disappeared. Um, and what we're seeing is that Majdal during the time of the British Mandate, which is interesting. So the Ottomans didn't really invest anything into uh, the redevelopment of Ashkelon or the area in general. Um, and then Majdal kind of on its own started to build itself up. But as European imports came in, Majdal itself declined. And again, we're seeing um, not really much activity uh, going on in Ashkelon. And that's where we're going to leave it. Um, and after this, we'll go into in the next episode, part two, we will go into um, what happens after the mandate 
and the modern city. All right, um, that's it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you enjoyed this history. It's a lot of fun. Um, it's really enjoyable for me to research it and to bring it to you. So um, if you like it, hit the like button and the subscribe button. And don't forget to hit the notification bell so you get the brand new episodes as they come out. Um, if you want to take us with you, you can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and on Spotify. And as I said, um, this episode is brought to you by the 12 Cities in Israel, Modern Hebrew Flashcards. And uh, we've got our new one out. Um, Numbers is out. So I have two of them on, uh, on Amazon for uh, the Kindle, and they're free for Kindle Unlimited. Um, and we have Aleph Bet and Numbers, and they're great, great for learning all of them. And if you're rusty, they're also great uh, for brushing up. I have a new update date that I'm waiting for to come out for those of you who bought it, but everyone who does buy it um, will get this new update, and that is I've added contents, uh, a table of contents to the Aleph Bet, and that way it's easier to uh, to maneuver throughout the uh, throughout the flashcards. And uh, the same type of table of comments contents is in the uh, in the numbers one. So uh, I come on, go there, get them. They will help you. They are awesome. Um, all right, that's it.